Hello and welcome to Macrobytes, the economics and politics podcast series from Aberdeen. My name is Luke Bartholomew and today we will be talking about some important changes in the European fiscal rules. Now whilst this might sound like a somewhat dry and technical topic, there are I think some quite important changes coming down the path both in terms of the macroeconomics fiscal rules around how Uh, fiscal policy is used to support the economy, debt and deficit levels and the level of interest rates, and also around the microeconomics of fiscal policy, how companies are supported and regulated, how competition policy is implemented. And all of this, we think, does have significant implications for various different markets and sectors of the economy. So I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Lizzie Galbraith, political economist at Aberdeen, and Paul Diggle, of course, co-host of this podcast, to discuss this important topic. So let us start with the question of European fiscal rules as they relate to macro policy. And Lizzie, there's been some new proposals from the EU around how these fiscal rules will change. So do you want to run us through what the proposals are in that respect? Yeah, so the European Commission has been working on a plan to update fiscal rules for about a year now. um, And it's got to the point where it has published some broad proposals for member states to consider. It's worth pointing out before I jump into those that the current fiscal rules have actually been suspended now since 2020 in recognition of the COVID pandemic and then the invasion of Ukraine, essentially making the member states spending completely unviable when it comes to maintaining those rules. So previously, when we did have a sort of active fiscal rules, every member state's government deficit couldn't exceed more than 3% of its GDP, and its debt wasn't supposed to exceed more than 60% of its GDP. And where there was an overshoot of the debt to GDP ratio, the gap was supposed to close by 120th per year. At the moment, because, as I said, of COVID and then the invasion of Ukraine, a lot of member states are exceeding those rules. So you have 15 member states currently exceeding the deficit rule and 14 exceeding the the debt rule. So the Commission is trying to work out on a a new framework that is a bit more realistic, given the, the position that most member states now find themselves in. There's three main components to what the Commission's put forward. The first being more national ownership of debt reduction plans. So the member states would propose their own fiscal plans um, that have to put debt and the government deficit down on a credible path to below the 60% and 3% targets. But the key point is that it wouldn't be imposed by the EU. Governments would essentially get to decide how they meet those targets or how they put spending on a path to meet those targets. Second is simplification of the fiscal rules. So the only fiscal indicator that the EU would use to judge spending going forward would be primary expenditure net of interest, unemployment spending and discretionary spending. And thirdly, crucially for some of the more fiscally hawkish states, is an enhanced enforcement regime to make sure that member states actually stick to these rules, which hasn't always been the case under the previous system. As you say there, there will be new enhancement enforced mechanisms to sort of perhaps buy off some of the more frugal, fiscally hawkish states. But do you think that will be enough to see these proposals passed? Or are we still seeing resistance from certain countries, even with those new mechanisms in place? 
The short answer is no, it's it's not enough. Principally, Germany is still pretty opposed to these these proposals, and it's it's German opposition that's really slowing this process down and and sort of making the reform process sort of drag on a bit. So Germany really is opposed to this idea that this is sort of a bespoke fiscal framework for each member state. They think it it sort of goes too far the other way, away from the old framework. And they want to see a bit more continuity between the the fiscal rules that each member state would, would have to adhere to. So we've had a little bit of progress today on the day of recording. So the finance ministers from the member states are actually meeting today and Germany has signalled that there's it's maybe something that they're now willing to actually discuss, whereas previously Germany was opposing the proposals and not really being willing to engage in in the reform process, which was jamming things up a bit. We've now got to the point where the Germans seem kind of more willing to talk about what it is that they might want in exchange for agreeing to a future framework, although very little in the way of sort of meaningful progress towards sort of substantive change yet. But certainly the way forward will be that the Commission is going to have to compromise on a little bit of this flexibility and probably some more some more concrete enforcement as well to, to make sure that the more hawkish states kind of remain on board going forwards as well. So, Paul, assuming that these reforms do get passed at some point in one form or another over the next year or so, what are the concrete differences we think it would make to European fiscal policies as it's actually implemented by the various different member states? Thanks, Luke. So I think because the starting point is an existing set of rules that are suspended, the change a new set of rules would make is is re- relatively small at first, you know, because you're starting from a point where there, there are no rules. I mean, if anything, the new set of rules would be more stricter than the complete absence of fiscal rules that we have at the moment, although, you know, we are obviously coming off an extraordinary economic period with COVID than, than the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the energy shock. So actually, it's kind of a, a tightening up of the fiscal framework relative to right now. Um, but we are in an unusual period at the moment. Longer term, then, comparing the new rules to the old rules, I think there are really there are two really important differences. The first is that the design of the old rules, which everyone criticised um, certain aspects of that design, they encouraged a pro cyclicality in fiscal policy, in particular during macroeconomic downturns, almost by design fiscal policy would take on contractionary qualities um, because you would see a deterioration in your deficit, in your debt-to-GDP ratio during a downturn. That is kind of normal. In in fact, um, it may be desirable in some respects. They're called the automatic stabilizers of fiscal policy. The new rules, I think, don't have that same degree of potentially macroeconomically damaging pro-cyclicality into a downturn. And that's because you're making primary expenditure, i.e. spending net of interest payments, net of unemployment spending, net of discretionary spending. You're making that the really important macro fiscal variable. So you're kind of taking out the cycle, or put another way, giving member states room, giving their financial ministries room to combat downturns with a degree of fiscal stimulus. And that, that's probably, from, a, from an economist perspective, from a growth perspective, probably a helpful change. And then the other really important change is that by introducing this bilateral 
element that Lizzie was talking about, you know, a plan that is designed together by a member state's uh, finance ministry and by the commission. I think you're reducing the scope for fiscal conflict risk, if I can use that term. You know, this very frequent problem we see in Europe where member states, and it's often the usual suspects, it might be Italy, it might be Greece, it might be other highly indebted states, come into conflict with the commission over the fiscal rules and over their fiscal pass. And that has all sorts of ructions into domestic politics and European-wide politics. You're basically toning down that conflict risk as well. So in the sense, perhaps you're encouraging a degree degree of European cohesion by having a somewhat more bilateral, flexible fiscal framework. So let me draw out there then what seems to me to be a bit of a tension between what Lizzie was saying around the difficulties of implementing these proposals about the need for enhanced enforcement mechanisms, the difficulty of bringing Germany on board with these fiscal reforms, to use a phrase that you use, Paul, Germany seems very much the usual suspect in that respect when it comes to resisting changes in European fiscal policy, compared to your point that actually maybe this is a mechanism that can allow for greater harmony and reducing the risk of fiscal ruction. So what really is the right way of framing this in terms of what it means for European solidarity and the way in which countries relate to each other over fiscal policy? I think the right framing is its progress as it usually occurs in Europe, which is via fits and starts spurred on by shocks and, and even crisis and with a lot of toing and froing and negotiating and compromising um, along the way. And I think it's, it's, it's yet again another kind of example of that's how policymaking gets done at a, at a supra-European level. And in a sense, how else would it get done yeah, in a union of so many countries? Um, so yeah, you do have kind of usual holdouts um, to, to use that term, but Lizzie's pointed to, to progress already, even marginal progress today. And I think it's our full expectation that a deal on the fiscal framework along the sort of lines of the commission's plan is done um, yeah, with some concessions perhaps to, to Germany to, between now and then. Um, and it is progress because you know it, it is a probably a more well-designed fiscal framework. There are plenty of problems with the old one. But, you know, this is what policymaking in Europe looks like. Um, you know, we get to look inside the sausage factory and there are plenty of kind of negotiations along the way. So I should probably point out that the day that we are recording this on that we've referred to several times is 14th of February. So perhaps there is some sort of Valentine's love between the European countries as they work to uh, to resolve some of these issues. But Paul, bringing together some of the points that you were making, A, about um, perhaps the reduced pro-cyclicality in fiscal policy going forward, and then also the possibility of lower tension between member states and perhaps a bit more flexibility around how they conduct fiscal policy, maybe reducing some of the tension that they have with the European institutions as a whole, what impact do you think those might have on interest rates and risk premium in European markets? Yeah, I think it has two very concrete investment implications or implications for interest rates, which is, I think it should at the margin raise the risk-free rate, but reduce the risk premium or the spread 
between European sovereigns in their bond market. So it should raise the risk-free rate because, um, in a sense, a more well-designed fiscal framework, a more flexible framework that responds to shocks, allows a degree of fiscal easing into downturns, should actually help your long-term growth rate. And to the extent that's reflected in your your risk-free equilibrium interest rate, it should mean a higher risk-free rate. On the other hand, I think it lowers the spread between sovereigns because that spread partly embodies default risk, even you know a, a, the very small probability of exit risk or redenomination risk in the eurozone, much of which stems from differences in fiscal policy and in, and fiscal flare-ups. Know, leading to heightened political re- rhetoric around exit and so on. I mean, none of which is ever particularly likely, but some tiny risk of it has to be factored into asset prices. And that, I think, helps explain why there are spreads in the Eurozone between member states. And if you're therefore reducing that risk by having a more well-designed fiscal framework, you actually, I think, see some should see some spread compression. Now, obviously, a lot of other things drive both the risk-free rate and the spreads, you know, all sorts of aspects of, of long-term growth, inflation, policy-making, politics. But this one, I think, does help anchor those, those variables in the longer term and means, as I say, higher risk-free, lower spreads. Okay, so that is the macroeconomic side of the changes in fiscal policy and what we think they mean for some important market variables. But as I said, there are also some quite important changes in sort of the microeconomics, as it were, of fiscal policy in Europe. And in particular, sort of the Inflation Reduction Act in the US, which we've talked about on this podcast before, seems to have precipitated amongst the EU and European countries, the sense that they need to update and reform their own rules about state aid and competition. So, Lizzie, maybe a good place to start is just by explaining why it is that Europe does feel that it needs to respond in some way to the Inflation Reduction Act in the US. And perhaps not only that it feels it needs to respond, but also that it feels rather aggrieved by how the US went about um, passing the Inflation Reduction Act. So why is it that Europe does have these sort of bad feelings around the policy? Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely an element to which part of the EU's upset over the Inflation Reduction Act is caused by the fact that it just wasn't really notified in advance. And it it's quite upset that the, the US didn't feel that it should be kind of involved in, in decision making of, of such a sort of a large scale on sort of global industrial policy. They didn't feel like it was a kind of a way that allies should sort of be be treated, I guess. So there is a little bit of a sort of a bruised ego element to this, particularly among some of the larger EU countries. Emmanuel Macron has been particularly sort of vocal on his his feelings towards the, the Inflation Reduction Act. And I think that's in part because France is obviously a, a very big manufacturer of, of things like cars that the Inflation Reduction Act seeks to target, but also that it wasn't necessarily the type of relationship that maybe some of the bigger European leaders thought they had with, with um, Joe Biden and policymakers in the US. But on a more practical level, what the Inflation Reduction Act does is essentially provide nearly $370 billion worth of, of tax breaks and subsidies by 2032 to boost green technology and energy security in the US. And the principal concern among European leaders, particularly France and Germany, is that that is going to harm their own manufacturing base, that companies are going to 
to leave Europe or curtail investment in Europe to take advantage of of those tax breaks that they might be able to get in the US for for the same manufacturing goods. So there's been quite a bit of debate in in Europe about how to how to respond to the Inflation Reduction Act to essentially protect their manufacturing base make sure that they're still going to be a sort of a big global player in some of these industries going forwards. And specifically, what are some of those proposals? And I suppose also, I mean, is there a sense in which those proposals run counter to some of Europe's previous thinking around state aid and the way in which individual nation states should respond to these questions? Yeah, there's a really interesting tension within the EU over over their response, principally because quite a big pillar of, of this is going to be about relaxing state aid. But Europe's in the unique position um, relative to some of these other countries in that it needs to protect the single market at the same time. And that's where a lot of this debate is going to be going forwards. So Europe's response is called the Green Deal Industrial Plan, and there's four main pillars to it. Part of it, this is about regulatory reform. So essentially protecting the the integrity of, of the single market by just making it quite hard for, for external companies to sell their goods in, in the EU by introducing very high regulatory barriers that maybe other, other manufacturing countries don't have. Another one of these pillars is around funding, which is a bit more contentious among EU member states, particularly around whether or not to borrow to support the industrial plan. And then there are two smaller elements as well, which is around increasing skills and shoring up supply chains to make sure that the EU is sourcing raw materials from a diverse range of of countries and making sure that it doesn't repeat what happened with commodities and Russia and making it very dependent on a single source for some of these key goods that it needs to, um, to support future growth. The real contention here is essentially around the tension between the relaxation of state aid rules and funding to support smaller member states that maybe can't take as much of advantage of relaxed state aid rules. So bigger countries, Germany and France in particular, will be able to benefit quite strongly from relaxed state aid rules. Smaller countries want funding to help them take advantage of those relaxed state aid rules because they don't have the same fiscal firepower. And the early compromise that we've got here between member states is that they're going to relax the state aid rules a bit because they don't want to deliver the level of funding that would be necessary for them to relax the state aid rules more and deliver an even more comprehensive response. And this is principally down to Germany's opposition to more borrowing. So what we're getting from the EU is a pretty a pretty limited initial response to the Inflation Reduction Act, but one that does give individual member states more flexibility to, to invigorate their own industrial base and more freedom to dictate their own industrial policy going forwards. And it's likely that we're going to see the debate over whether more funding should be delivered sort of rumble on over the next few years as well. So it's unlikely that we've seen the end of of Europe's sort of debate over how to respond to the Inflation Reduction Act. Thanks, Lizzie. So, Paul, perhaps as a final thought, then, we've talked a lot on this podcast before about deglobalisation, onshoring of production, uh, possibility of trade wars running across various different 
axes and across different countries, the importance of industrial policy around the green transition. So in the context of all those kind of big picture themes, what is the right way you think of, of, of framing what's going on around the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act and Europe's response to it? Well, I think it's rightly seen as as um, embodying some of those key themes, Luke. So the first would be the changing nature of globalization, and in particular, the growing focus on securing strategic industries and ensuring the security and resilience of the supply chains around those key strategic industries. And the, and, the, and I think the key point here is that green technology and all of the, the, the technologies involved in the energy transition are precisely one of those strategic industries. And the US with its Inflation Reduction Act, the EU with its response is doing what it can using the power of the state to encourage those industries domestically. I think that's what the IRA is. I think that is what relaxing the state aid rules in in Europe are as well. That's the key point, number one. Um, The second one, I think, is that conflict in the global trade arena doesn't just happen on the familiar US-China axis. Um, It can also, to a lesser extent, and and with perhaps bigger guardrails, occur on the US-EU axis as well. And I think the the EU's peaked response to the IRA tells you that it's seen in Europe as being you know, a potential overstepping of of how the global trading system should should work. Now, obviously, Europe's response, as Lizzie's articulated, is is being measured. But you know, early on, there was kind of perhaps like loose talk of a growing subsidy war between the US and and the EU. So I think that's the second one. And then the third key takeaway for me is that um, onshoring, reshoring, securing strategic industries, knowing that you have security of supply chains for you know whether it be things involved in military production but also in green production they are obviously unwinding some of the gains from trade that occurred during the, the hyper globalization period of the 90s and early 2000s and you know, there's obviously a vast economic literature on gains from trade you know having very long complicated supply chains delivers efficiencies um, that's why those things developed. You're kind of trading off that. You're losing those efficiencies. But what you're gaining, on the other hand, might be resilience and security of supply. Issues that we know can be threatened during um, global pandemics or or wars, when the fact that you're reliant on certain external supplies f- for key goods can become a real problem. So you're trading off, I think, efficiency and resilience. Or put another way, you might be trading off the expected outcome in any single year for, for, for growth might be lower, but because you're perhaps reducing some tail risks, your vulnerability to shocks, your expected outcome over a whole range of years could even could be higher because you don't suffer the very negative outcomes during big negative economic shocks because you've built in this degree of resilience. So I think it's an important evolution of like we we had previously had gains from trade. Now we have the focus on resilience and securing strategic industries. 
Thanks, Paul. Well, with that very philosophical, anti-fragile style point there, we will leave it for this week. Please do join us next time when we will be discussing monetary policy in Japan in the light of the new governor. Uh, But in the meantime, all that remains is for me to remind you all to please do subscribe and review us on your podcast platform of choice. To thank Lizzie and Paul for their excellent contributions and to thank you all for listening. So thanks very much and speak again soon. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for information purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment, recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections, or estimates, and provide no guarantee of future results.